The dream is the small hidden door in the deepest and most intimate sanctum of the soul, which opens to that primeval cosmic night that was soul long before there was conscious ego, and will be soul far beyond what a conscious ego could ever reach. Carl Jung Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone for coming in and listening this week. If this is your first time, welcome. I hope you enjoy, and I hope you'll continue to listen. And if you're a returning listener, thank you so much, as always. So, this week, we should be able to cover all of the major points I want to talk about when talking about the Aboriginal Australians between 8,000 and 6,000 BC. BCE. Um, and we might need one more episode, but we will see about that. Just to, you know, we'll just have to see how it goes, see how long I ramble and take to talk about things. Um, but if uh, I don't complete it this week, we will complete it next week and then we'll move on to Europe. Uh, now the week following is Labor Day weekend here in America and there's a lot of things that happen during that time of year and uh, that Monday um, I will not have an episode out. Um, I may have a bonus episode out the following day uh, but it's not going to be a, a true episode. It'll be like a bonus. It'll, it'll be something that's not quite as uh, important or as serious as everything else we talk about. So just keep that in mind. Um, I'm going to be doing some traveling and all that kind of stuff, and I will not be back in my space to record uh, for that period. But I will have a kind of a short bonus episode out maybe that Tuesday or that Wednesday. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. And then the following week we'll have a normal episode, as always. Now, um, before we get into the meat of this episode, um, I did have some feedback from a couple of people, and I also had a clarification I wanted to get to, uh, you know, I wanted to make for something I had said. Uh, first, <coughs> someone asked me about the Negrito peoples living in parts of Asia and how exactly they're related to the Aboriginal peoples of Australia and Melanesia. Uh, so the most recent genetic studies that I've read about uh, are from 2021. And I think I might have referred to them very briefly in season one, like kind of in passing. I don't think I really dived into it that much then or during the episodes when I talked about Java, Borneo, or the Philippines, either this season or in season two. I essentially... Um, Essentially what these studies say is that based off remains found in the Philippines and Sulawesi, uh, the first Homo sapiens on those islands split from the Sahulians, which are the ancestors of aboriginals and uh, New Guineans or Papuans, um, you know, the, the immediate group before those two groups kind of uh, diverged genetically. Uh, the so the um, the first Philippines and Sulawesi uh, split from the Sahulians before they divided into uh, 
Papuans and Australians. Uh, but after the East Asians split off from the shared ancestors of the Sahulian and Negrito populations. Now, another thing I wanted to do, this is the point I wanted to make my clarification with. When I was speaking about Melanesia as a whole, while they do in general have darker skin than Polynesians or Micronesians, there are some groups that do have lighter skin that appear closer to Polynesian or Micronesian. And there are cases where the opposite true. There are Polynesians or Micronesians that look more like Melanesians. Uh, yet despite this difference in skin tone, uh, all of these groups consider themselves uh, Melanesian, Polynesian, Micronesian because of their geography and their cultural similarities, linguistics, shared histories, etc. So they place much less of an emphasis on skin tone than, say, peoples in uh, the Americas or in Europe, though. Again, uh, that's not always the case, but it is much more likely. Now, to get back to the focus of this week's episode, uh, we talked about how Australia was separated from New Guinea. And while the sea levels probably weren't quite as high as they are today, uh, or I'm sorry, they, uh, they aren't, yeah, no, wait. Uh, the sea levels probably weren't quite equal to what they are today. They were very close. And they did leave kind of another isolated group, which I haven't mentioned yet. Um, this was due to me grouping them with the Aboriginal Australians. And there are a couple of reasons for this that I'll talk about shortly. I'm referring to the people known as the Torres Strait Islanders. Now, the Torres Strait is the section of ocean that goes from the north of the Cape Yorktown Peninsula, I'm sorry, the Cape York Peninsula to the shores of New Guinea. Uh, that's that little, if you look at a map of Australia, uh, it's the peninsula that's just kind of like a little small, maybe finger pointing up uh, on the eastern side of Australia. Um, its name uh, comes from the Spanish explorer, uh, or I should say the, the name of the strait comes from the Spanish explorer Luis Vaz de Torres, or de Torres, excuse me. Now, there has been a push recently for an indigenous term for the region to kind of be co-recognized. Uh, the one that is the most prominent, in fact, it may be the only one as far as I know, is the term Zenada Kes or Zenadith Kes. And this is an acronym of Z-E or Ze, which means South, N-A, which stands for Nege, which means North, D, uh, is the representative for the word Dagam, which means place or side, and then TH, which stands for Thawathwa, which is coastline. And Kes is the word meaning passage, channel, or waterway. And it was added uh, to make it clear that it was, it was basically added to uh, Zenata later. So it was initially the term they first proposed was Zenata. Uh, and then later, Kess was added onto that to make it a little bit clearer to what it was. Uh, now, according to the Torres Island Strait Regional Council's website, uh, this was workshopped with input from members of um, the Western Islands, 
uh, which is a grouping of the Torres Islands, and local elders from that region and the region as a whole. So from all the island sections that kind of belong to that region. Um, the Torres Strait is 150 kilometers or 93 miles wide at its narrowest extent. And there are around somewhere between 270 to 280 islands in that region. And altogether, these islands make up only around 220 square miles or 570 square kilometers of land. Now, in terms of sea area, the region is around 48,000 square kilo kilometers and about 19,000 square miles. So, um, you have a lot of sea area to cover, uh, not nearly as much as land. Now, these islands may not have been occupied at the point that our podcast is focusing on. Uh, it's very much a debated issue, and it's one of the mysteries of Australian prehistory that I kind of referred to last time. Uh, climate, ocean, geographic features, you know, all this together make finding evidence hard to pin down. And it's possible that some of the islands were occupied, abandoned, and then reoccupied before becoming permanent homes. Or it's possible that, you know, some groups may have just gone fishing out to the islands, would only stay for a couple weeks, then they'd go back home. You know, stuff like that, you know, wouldn't leave too much of a record. Again, archaeology works best when you have a very long period of time uh, of same of the same event or similar events happening. It's hard to get just one single point in time uh, for archaeologists. Now, the earliest dates where we find evidence for permanent usage to the islands is around 18,000-ish BCE. But there are some older examples, and I don't think it's all that crazy to assume that people may have been visiting the islands earlier than that. Uh, now, from what I have read, most of the islanders are more closely related to Papuan Melanesians than the aboriginal peoples of Australia, but they have more language overlap, overlap excuse me, with the aboriginal peoples. Though all of this varies, of course, from island to island and from tribe to tribe. Um, they do not, nor have they ever considered themselves one ethnic group. They're all very proud of their particular cultures and customs, though in the modern day, you know, the various tribes and first peoples of uh, the islands and the mainland do display solidarity when fighting for either recognition or concessions from, you know, the various levels of Australia's governments and courts and, you know, economic concerns, all that kind of stuff. Um... And also, I should point out, and this kind of goes back to their how they're related, um, the Torres Island people do appear to have been a separate group. Uh, you know, they, they appear to have all diverged genetically um, prior to that 1800 date, or, you know, 18,000-ish BC, BCE. So it's possible that they were living, you know, on the mainland of New Guinea, or the island of New Guinea, isolated uh, and then you know as time went on they migrated off the island due to 
changes happening in New Guinea itself that we'll talk about when we get to that period of time. So just keep that in mind. Uh, the, the Torres Island Straits, their people there are ancient, or at least, you know, old enough to be a distinct group. Uh, but how long they've actually lived on those islands, while it has been a long time, might not be quite as long as what we're talking about. But we can't say that firmly one way or the other. And I say that, you know, not to diminish their claims to land or anything, because again, they have been living on the islands for a while. How long? We don't know. And, uh, you know, obviously they were the first peoples there, uh, so take of that as you will. Um, now, I would say that they are probably being, um, the islands themselves, if they're not being used, they are probably being used, or the area where those islands now occupy were probably being lived in before the water levels rose, before, you know, Australia and New Guinea got separated. Uh, those regions were probably mountainous, which we know that there are groups in New Guinea that like the mountains. Like, that's how they got so isolated in that region, because the mountains were very good homes. Uh, now, um, possibly, um, due to the, um, you know, due to the rapidly rising water levels, um, it could have made, you know, people hesitant to return because they don't know like they wouldn't necessarily have a way to explain why the waters rose as quickly as they did uh, it's possible that the rising tides could have wiped out some groups completely and that may have explained the hesitation for um, people to fully reoccupy the islands until a later period uh, they probably would have uh, if they weren't continuously occupied, people probably would have slowly returned to hunt or fish in those waters, look for material, uh, and then after a period of time of becoming more comfortable doing that, then they return and live there fully, uh, permanently. Um, and uh, we'll talk about kind of the long memory of humanity and specifically uh, Aboriginal people uh, and, you know, other pre-literate pre pre societies, excuse me. Uh, that's something we'll talk about here and uh, in future episodes as well. But um, for now, we're going to move on to the island continent of Australia. Now... The name Australia comes from the term Australis or Australis, which is Latin for South. And this term, or some variation of it, uh, usually Terra Australis or Southland, uh, has been used since around the 400s AD to represent uh, kind of a hypothetical landmass south of India, or just a blob of like what could be land or just could be like filler on a map. Um, and now this, uh, this hypothetical landmass um, was based on a theory developed by um, an influential 2nd century philosopher, Ptolemy of Alexandria, who had himself been influenced by earlier Roman and um, 
Greek thinkers and theorists. So despite what you may have heard online, those really old maps with the giant blank landmass are not depicting the ice wall around a flat earth or a lost continent that just keeps getting copied onto maps from older maps despite sinking for a few millennia prior to maps even being created. Um, just throw that out. Just, just throwing that out there for everyone. Uh, now, despite the antiqui eh, antiquity of the term, it wasn't applied to the actual continent of Australia until around 1800, uh, 1805, somewhere in that range, uh, by the British. And even then, uh, other terms persisted. Uh, New Holland was one such term, and Ula Mauroa uh, was used by some Scandinavian and German language maps. Uh, New, New Holland obviously comes from Dutch explorers to the region, and Uli Marora was a name that was a Swedish um, was a name that a Swedish geographer Daniel Gerberg got from the Maori of New Zealand. Uh, though it should be pointed out that the accuracy of this name has been questioned very heavily. Uh, the most popular explanation is that this name is actually referring to the large islands one of the larger islands in Fiji, or New Caledonia. And I'm not going to go into the details on that right now. Probably won't even get to that, you know, until we talk about the Europeans exploring the region, which is many, many episodes from now. Now, there is no one Aboriginal Australian term for Australia. Uh, like most of the peoples of New Guinea, the aboriginal hunter-gatherers of Australia were remarkably sedentary. And in fact, were even more so than the people of New Guinea. Uh, they seem to have reached a region that they preferred, uh, you know, that appealed to them for whatever reason. And then they migrated in that region internally. Um, they would rarely leave a ranch. Uh, one group leaving from you know, their traditional homeland to another uh, is very, very rare indeed. Um, so they typically only name places that were in their immediate surroundings or maybe of locations that you know had special cultural or religious significance. In fact, there is so little travel and intermarriage between these groups that it can be said that in, um, just an example, groups in southwest Australia uh, have less in common, genetically speaking, with um, groups in the northeast of Australia than some Native Americans, at least northern Native Americans, have in common with Native Siberians. Uh, the, the Native Americans of North America are more closely related to the Siberians than, you know, groups on opposite ends of Australia are to each other. Now, that's kind of changing somewhat with, you know, travel across the continent becoming more, um, more possible due to, you know, the modern technology. Um, there are examples of Aboriginal Australians intermarrying with you know, various groups who they would not normally have been able to even ever meet in the past. Um, I've watched a number of videos online from a gentleman, and I forget his name, but his father was kind of from the north, 
uh, central side of Australia, and his mother's people were from the far southeast. So he has a lot of different um, examples, and he's you know he's knowledgeable of both of their languages and kind of what they had in terms of um, terminology for kind of the same technology or same concepts. Now, for when these places were first occupied, we reach one of the other big mysteries of Australian prehistory. Perhaps the largest mystery of the Australian prehistory. How did people expand across the continent? Essentially, there are five major theories. Um, One is that they just spread... uh, coming down from Sahul, uh, all, all along that connected land border, uh, and they just kind of spread from north to south, uh, from east to west, all at the same time. Um, the second theory is that they entered from the northwest and then fanned out from there in all directions, with some groups then moving south or north when they hit the east coast. Uh, third option is that they migrated through what is now the Cape York Peninsula. And then they made their way south to what will become Tasmania, with various groups breaking off and moving west at various points during the primary southward expansion. Uh, then fourth, we have the theory that they arrived in the northwest and spread along the coast in that region before a group broke off and migrated to the east coast with another group breaking off during that trip to head to the middle of the continent and then toward the southwest. While descendants of the group that made it all the way to the east coast moved south to occupy the southeastern corner and Tasmania. Then we have the final theory that they entered to the northwest and then you had some groups split off from this initial peopling and occupy the coast while some of the splinter groups headed along the northern and east coasts and and going along the west and southern coasts. And then each of these migration waves seeing other groups break off and make their way for the interior. Uh, Each of these theories is based on archaeological evidence, but from what I can tell, none of these um, places um, or pieces of... uh, you know, technology or tools that they find can be definitively dated as the earlier evidence. It seems that whatever artifacts or whatever uh, that you can find can always be placed in a date range. That means it could be older, but it could also be newer than other artifacts. Definitively dating things to a specific period is very hard. You're just getting like a a thousand or two thousand or three thousand year range or you know a couple hundred year ranges something like that now dna evidence could be used to help solve this mystery however um, most ancient remains that have been found have been located on tribal lands and while modern aboriginal people seem to be fairly open for dna testing for the living and the like, they do not like disturbing the graves of their ancestors and generally don't give permission for digging them up and damaging the remains for a chance, again, a chance to find DNA. Um, This respect for native burials is, of course, a new phenomenon, or at least a fairly new phenomenon. Um, There was a famous um, group of early Australians 
um, found at uh, a kind of a place called Mungo, which is a dried out lake. Uh, lake. Uh, and one of these is a was called the Mungo Man. Uh, he was found in the 70s. And um, there were, again, there were a couple of others uh, people found there too, but he was the oldest. Uh, and they were removed without the consent of the local tribal group. Um, and this has caused no end to controversy. Uh, now, uh, to be clear, the tribal group, I think, in question did not necessarily live all that close to the river. Though, again, it's in their traditional kind of uh, hunting grounds. Uh, and I don't know that the scientists even thought to ask uh, the tribal group. Uh, they're, you know, at that point in time, a lot of study into the aboriginal groups, like the past, was not um, really done. Uh, and there's a number of factors that play into that. And Mungo Man, again, will help contribute to some of the changes of this kind of thoughts. But uh, we'll get to that in just a second. Now, um, the reason that this was kind of, you know, groundbreaking at the time is that the remains showed that humans were in Australia prior to 20,000 years ago, which in the 60s and 70s, uh, was the time that the general scientific consensus of when the first humans arrived. 20,000 years ago was when everything they had found up to that point had said that humans had first got there. Uh, so as you can imagine, you know, uh, this caused a firestorm uh, because these were remains that were, some of these remains were well older than 20,000 years. So this caused a firestorm and gave a big boost to kind of the multi-regional human hypothesis uh, because it wasn't a typical Homo sapiens skull. It looked like it was um, maybe slightly archaic. It was kind of like a mix between modern Homo sapiens and, you know, slightly more older versions of Homo sapiens or kind of in that transitory phase between the archaic and modern. So it was thought that this may have been like a one of the regions that the first humans uh, had evolved in, and then they spread out and met with groups leaving Africa, uh, if you remember that multi-regional human hypothesis. Now, um, later finds in other places in Australia and all around the world made this find stand out a lot less. And instead, you know, it eventually reinforced the theory that humans left Africa earlier than that than thought at the time. Um, once all the evidence worldwide was kind of taken into account. So Mungo Man kind of lost some of his um some of his uh I guess uh uniqueness. Uh, he he wasn't quite as shocking of the find. Now, but this was not the end of the Mungo remains' scientific impact or their controversy, though. Um, DNA testing from the early 2000s on his remains returned some very interesting results, which didn't help matters with the local Aborigines. Essentially, the results published claimed that the test showed that these remains were not related at all to the local Aboriginal tribes. And essentially these people were from an archaic strain of humans and that it completely supported the multi-regional human uh, hypothesis. 
uh, because they had more in common with Europeans than aboriginals. Now, this immediately received pushback and criticism, and not just from tribal groups. A number of uh, you know prominent um, out of Africa scientists were you know calling BS on the study, uh, as well as um, you know others. In addition to, of course, the tribal groups. Now, eventually, the remains were repatriated to the tribal lands shortly after. I think around 2005 or so. Maybe a little bit later. Uh, But during the period um, they were being repatriated, a different group of researchers requested and received permission to perform new DNA studies with newer techniques. uh, And they got permission not just for the Munger remains, but for other remains held by other groups. So in 2016, the findings of this new study uh, by uh, Wepik or Weepink et al. were published under the title Ancient MTDNA Sequences from the First Australians Revisited. Uh, I recommend you read this study. It is very interesting. Um, But most of it is out of the kind of scope of this podcast. Um, But to summarize, they claim that the result provided uh, during that earlier study were the results of contamination of the bones during handling. And that their tests show that all the testable remains prove to be ancestors of modern Aboriginal peoples and were fairly closely related in some way or another with their modern local groups. Now, uh, there's more information in there and it will probably be mentioned be mentioned in more detail in the next couple of seasons when we talk about Australia. Um, But the whole reason I'm bringing this up, despite it relating to a time frame that we're not focusing on, is because it shows that that the Australian Aboriginal peoples living at the time we're referring to are closely tied to the same lands uh, and that their ancestors had been. These are not, you know, vast, roving, uh, migratory uh, hunter-gatherer bands. These are very sedentary people. Uh, And that, you know, they not only maintained their lands, uh, they preserved and passed down large portions of their lifestyles and tools from generation to generation. Or I guess I I should say their knowledge of how to make tools were passed down from generation to generation for kind of the entire period uh, that they occupied the continent. And they also passed down, you know, interesting records of their occupation. Uh, And it's passed down in the same way the that other traditions were via oral tradition or oral history. Now, I'm going to talk about some of these records as well as kind of what we know of their religion. Um, But I would like to talk about the tools that the Australians are using uh, first um, at this period of time. Um, Now, uh, they are, when they get to Australia, they maintain a more Paleolithic style toolkit. Um, they don't have the micro blades of like other Neolithic peoples. Um, 
they do have stone tools, of course, uh, but they tend to be larger, uh, and they interplay them a lot with uh, wood and, you know, well, I guess, well-carved and treated wood to harden them and make sure that they don't break and shatter. Um, and it appears that part of the reason that they kind of keep to this older style of tool making is that Australia apparently, from what I've read and kind of have seen on the map, they did not have access to a large amount of um, flint, which is very important for a lot of the more, um, I guess, the more, um, I guess, micronized <laughs> stone tools, um, things like that. Uh, there are very few places in Australia with, uh, I guess, easily to get at uh, flint deposits. I think there's only some places in the far kind of south central part of the continent. Um, they did have access to chert, which is um, which is another good stone for making tools. Um, not probably not quite as good for um, you know making things you know in the Neolithic fashion, um, but you can still get very sharp uh, stones. Uh, from chert and chert's not you know it's not super abundant either but it is much more um, abundant than say flint uh, and I think it, it was more widely spread uh, for Australia so part of the reason that they keep this older trull tradition is because they don't have access to some of the material that you see in some of these other Neolithic uh, societies or, or uh, tool cultures. Um, but, uh, again, one of those videos I watched, it was very interesting because um, he kind of talked about how most of the tools of the Aboriginal people served at least two different functions. In some cases, they served far more than that. Uh, and I imagine that this is the case for a number of different societies. But... Um, one thing uh, he was talking about boomerangs um, specifically. Um, most groups had two different types. You had a larger one that you could use for um, bigger animals, things like emus, kangaroos, humans, to defend yourself or to attack. Um, these would not return. They were either to be thrown uh, at kind of a short distance. Uh, it would it would do good damage to you. It wouldn't cut you necessarily, but it would definitely bruise you, uh, knock you unconscious if you were hit in the wrong place, break a bone or two. Um, and in addition to, you know, being throwable, you could use it as kind of a very rudimentary club. Probably wouldn't do quite as good of a damage as an actual club, which they also had. Uh, that was something that could be done. Um, but in addition to using these as weapons and hunting tools, um, you know, apparently they would occasionally take two of them and kind of tap their arms together at the same time to create music. They were used as musical instruments. Um, you also have the smaller variety of boomerangs, which I think we're more familiar with, um, these would return if they were thrown and they did not hit anything. Um, but uh, 
apparently they were favored to hunt things like uh, waterfowl and birds. Um, essentially, you'd throw this into a flock of birds, and you know, if you were good and lucky, you could hit one bird, and if you were very good and very lucky, you could hit two, three, maybe even four. Uh, and you know, it would do enough damage going through the flock that even if the birds survived, they wouldn't be able to fly away. And while your you know your boomerang would fall, you could easily recover it along with the birds. Um, and these two could be used as uh, musical instruments as well. Uh, in addition to this, uh, they have the uh, Aboriginal Australians also developed a small wooden shield. Uh, and when I say small, I mean it is very small. Uh, it is not much wider than a human body standing, um, you know, uh, like the side of a human, like from your, from the front of your shoulder to the back of your shoulder, uh, it would just cover that, uh, and this would be used to uh, essentially completely defend yourself from uh, another human's attacks. That was its primary purpose, uh, and you wouldn't you wouldn't hold it in front of you like you would a more traditional shield or what we think of as a traditional shield you would turn your body so it was narrow and then you would have that in front of your arm or coming up and covering your neck or your head and then the rest of your body you know you'd have to try to get behind it get low and narrow um but even these shields served a dual purpose uh their primary purpose of course is defense but they would have divots and lines in them uh, to help you know you direct a deflection or a weapon away. Uh, you know if you just had something that was flat, you know it could be pierced. It wouldn't uh, necessarily bounce off you quite as well. Uh, but these divots were also places that they could load up with um, tinder. Or things like that, something to, to set a fire, and then they could rub their the the thin parts or edges of their uh, boomerangs to kind of create a friction to help create a fire. Um, so again, very utilitarian. Um, also, there are both male and female versions of these type, uh, uh, especially of uh, boomerangs. Um, female boomerangs apparently at least in the tradition of the um, the north central Australians that the gentleman's father was related to uh, the male boomerangs typically were made from the branches of the trees while the female boomerangs were made from uh, the roots or the base of the trees so um, he didn't go into detail of why that was done um, but, uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways you can spe speculate on that. But um, they also had various carrying implements um, that you would use to create uh, dirt or carry water uh, that were not, um, you know, that were not clay or pottery. Uh, but they could also be used uh, offensively to dig, um, carry children, carry other uh, things that you wanted to eat. All kinds of things. And, you know, there were male and female varieties of those type of tools, or at least uh, certain types of tools were more likely to be used by one gender than another. 
so this is all something to uh, keep in mind so um, and yeah so that's that's something that um, you know that I found very interesting uh, and it's something that you know I haven't really talked about too much since the first season or so but it was nice to see very you know real examples of that and it's something that uh, has been passed down uh, you know orally those traditions uh, the reason they've done it is because or the reason that they know how it was done is because it was continually done even after uh, the Europeans arrived and in a lot of cases did upset a lot of different balances of um, traditional lifestyle. Um, now that kind of leads me into talk uh, back uh, to talk about oral traditions and histories. Now oral traditions are not unique to the Aboriginal people. All human societies practice at least some form of oral tradition. Um, now, literate societies, of course, practice this at a much less intense level, but we all have stories we tell about friends and families, uh, members, and we love to tell other people about these, you know, these stories. Uh, we also have bedtime stories, which are very simple. You know, they're, they tend to be short. But they're something that, you know, you can tell your children uh, without having a book or something along those lines. And of course, everyone can tell a pretty detailed story about themselves if they have to. Um, after all, who knows yourself better than you do? Um, and you also probably know your parents pretty well and can tell people about them. As for your grandparents, if you're lucky enough to know them and know them for years, uh, at least until you're, you know, you're cognizant, um, or you've obtained sentience, I guess, for lack of a better term, for, for getting to that age and understanding, you know, about, you know, being an individual, about being a person, being conscious, I guess. Um, you'll probably know a decent bit about your great, uh, about your grandparents. But past that is when you run into a lot of problems. Uh, basically, a living human, for most of history, can't, usually accurately access more than three, possibly four generations of memories, uh, personally. Uh, you can talk to your parents, you can, of course, you know yourself, you can talk to your parents, you can talk to your grandparents. You might even be able to talk to your great-grandparents. Um, now, you know, talking to your parents and grandparents is very good you can understand a lot but there are some things that you know you you sometimes just have to be there to really know uh and there of course is the issue with the retelling um you may forget a fact or a, a part of the story that your parents or grandparents told you or you might change it a little bit just in the retelling to make it seem more interesting and more exciting now, these types of stories are tied solely to one family, and they usually disappear from memory and record. Um, now, stories that are remembered, you know, past that period of time, that three to four generation period, um, you know, typically affect more than just one family. Uh, but instead they affect many families or whole regions or whole you know groups of families or even unrelated uh, groups or families you know 
your family, a family across the valley, your family uh, 10 miles down a river. You know, there are certain events that affect, you know, everyone, or at least what appears to be everyone in your worldview. Uh, so all of these, uh, these big events are preserved from multiple perspectives, uh, multiple people across several generations. So, you know, something like that tends to last a lot longer in memory and tends to be retold a lot, which helps it be retold. Um, you know, and there are instances where, you know, you can talk to someone who talked to someone who was, say, like if you talked, uh, if you were young, say if you were in your, you know, your late, uh, your late teens or early teens sometime then, you talked to your grandparents about someone they talked to when they were your age then. Um, you know, you're, you're stretching it. You're, you're, you're probably not going to be able to get much further past 150, 200 years. Um, I know one time as an example, I think it, I was in middle school, I was either in elementary school or middle school. We had someone who fought in the first world war come and speak to our group. And he was already very old at that point. Um, but and I don't remember much of what he told us. I, I know what I've read about the world, First World War. I know popular media depictions. Uh, but I, I do remember meeting him. I, but I don't remember necessarily his name. Um, you know, and we're at the point now where I believe every single World War One veteran's dead. When I was younger, there were, you know, there were still, I think, around a thousand or so. Um, I remember when there were much more than that. And soon it will get to the point where all the World War II veterans have died and passed away. So, you know, right now we have this plethora of primary sources for all these things. Or at least we have records of these primary sources. These, these people actually saw eyewitness events. Um, this is something that oral tradition and history... Uh, they record in a similar way, but it is, of course, this is something you have to memorize. This is something you have to practice. This is a skill. Uh, so, you know, they probably were told these stories hundreds of times to remember them and pass them on. Um, now, the kind of stories I'm referring to, uh, not the family stories, though I'm sure that there are cases of certain groups, you know, hearing stories about a famous ancestor uh, who went on a especially uh, great hunt or, you know, journey, something like that. I'm sure these stories are passed down as well. Um, but uh, the aboriginals also give a great record of the land they live in. And we know um, that their memory stretches back even past the time period that we're referring to. Now, obviously, these stories, in many cases, take on mythological aspects. They are given uh, additional uh, details that probably were not remembered or passed on to kind of make them more interesting. But there are records of certain groups um, talking about the areas that they lived in, about floods and uh, storms and things like that uh, that would line up with what we know about the rising water level. So we we have uh, 
very, very second or, you know, third-hand sources, I guess, of some of the major events, ecologically speaking, uh, that take place in Australia. So um, this has led some to kind of conclude that the, the Aboriginal uh, society here in Australia is, in fact, the oldest civilization in the world. Um, now, that is debated uh, because, you know, there is always a debate about what is a civilization. Uh, but in terms of a collective identity or at least a... Try to think of the best term for this. Not necessarily an identity, because again, these groups do consider themselves, you know, separate from their neighbors. They, there, there are all these tribal identities. There are these ethno-linguistic identities. Um, but there is a certain amount of, I guess, I guess you call it an overlap. Um, in terms of their lived experiences and of their stories, their mythology. Um, I guess maybe the best way to put it would be like a religious tradition that is passed down, not just in one place of Australia, but in uh, all across the continent. And so, two of these big examples uh, that are passed down, in addition to their uh, oral traditions about historic events, uh, and I think it's important to note that their biggest traditions are, you know, that are passed down are these major events that are affecting not just them, but the land. Um, uh, but you also have other um, things that they have in common aside from these ecological events. They also have religious stories or mythological stories that they pass down uh, and that they share in common. Um, and I'll talk about those here in just a moment. Uh, but of course there are certain stories that, uh, that they pass down that are about things that happen well beyond, uh, human occupation of Australia. Um, things like, um, Ayers Rock or Uluru. Uh, there's a story of how that was formed. Now, obviously that's been there for millions of years. Uh, humans can't have been here, uh, while that was happening because, the first hominid probably hadn't even evolved by the time uh, Uluru was created. But um, there are aspects of the Uluru creation story that could have been based on a real thing. There's a mention of two brothers being involved in the creation. It's very possible that uh, two uh, brothers could have been involved with some type of event that took place at Uluru. Perhaps they were involved with the carving of some petroglyphs in the area, um, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, there are certain events, obviously, it was not possible for humans to see, but that's not to say that stories related to those events could not have happened in some roundabout way. Um, and then, of course, just as time went on and the, you know, the desire to make your story more interesting or to tie in these famous uh, ancestors or heroes of your group, you might not try to mythologize them. Or it, the, the retelling of these stories may not have grown in importance. Um, or there might be a, um, a type of um, either a euphemism or you know something's happening that 
you know, the meaning changes over time about what they're doing. You know, what this person does, you know, might change over time. Like the meaning of what the term you're saying that they did changes over time. Uh, and I, I really look forward to this when we talk about some more comparative mythology stuff. But uh, I think the Aboriginals, aside from you know some of the Khoisan groups, probably have uh, at least the longest religious traditions. Uh, if not, you know, again, you can debate about civilization, that kind of thing. Uh, you can debate of whether they qualify for that or not. But I do think it's safe to say that they do have this kind of long-standing religious tradition that is definitely, if not number one, probably number two or three. Um, so that is something I, I do kind of uh, agree with, though I am, you know, I'm kind of skeptical on the civilization stuff. Um, and I'll, I, I think I'll go into that. We definitely will go into that in the future. But um, I'm going to talk about, you know, their spiritual and religious traditions um, but there is something that does change in this society, uh, and it's something I haven't really touched on at all, and that is language. Um, there is a very big shift in the Aboriginal languages, at least according to linguistics uh, uh, professionals, um, due to the estimated age of you know, the various um, language families in Australia. Uh, the language itself is not all that old. Uh, and there is some thought that there may have been some type of outside migration into Australia. And not at any large level. Um, it would be something small, maybe something that's culturally or religiously significant. Or set off like kind of this uh, revolution in ideas uh, among the Aboriginal themselves. It may not have been like a large scale um, migration that you know changed uh, genetics vastly, but it could have set off like a cultural or spiritual revolution or religious revolution. Um, but we'll talk about that later. That happens. Uh, that happens probably two or three, well, a couple seasons from now. Uh, but uh, there are some aspects of the Australian religion that we know are older than that than that event. Um, and are probably, you know, as old as the period of time we're talking about, and definitely maybe even older. Um, now, of course, um, there are, um, you know, very old rock art, petroglyphs, uh, red ochre paintings, uh, which are, red ochre is the oldest form of medium, red ochre on stone, uh, as far as I know, is the oldest uh, medium that humans have been working with. Uh, and there are, you know, some kind of um, overlap in certain areas between various traditions. But the, I guess the the largest overlap, uh, or the widest spread uh, figure in Aboriginal mythology or religion, uh, is uh, the rainbow serpent or rainbow snake. Um, it's very much considered by some as kind of a creator god uh, and it has a lot of different names and while different groups do have slightly different versions of the tale um, all of them have some type of um, uh, 
overlap or you know share certain common aspects. Um, I'm not going to go into names and stuff right now because again, linguistically speaking, these names don't exist just yet. But know that I think there are um, there are over there. I think modern Aboriginal languages there are over 200. Uh, I don't think there are quite that many names uh, for the serpent. Uh, in you know, there's not a name for each group, but there are at least uh, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, there, there's, there's over, there's over uh, uh, two dozen, I think, at least, and there's probably even more than that. Um, I, it's not something that's very well um, preserved in English because there are so many names. Um, but uh, generally speaking, it's just referred to as a rainbow serpent. Uh, and the serpent is very important. Um, it creates land. Uh, it is a bringer of uh, rain in cer certain situations. It also uh, brings um, wealth, though not in the wealth, not in the way we would associate wealth, but like more wealth in terms of um, environmental wealth. Um, it, it, you know, it's um, uh, it it relieves drought. It brings animals. It brings um, blessings. All kind of of you know things that you would want as a hunter gatherer. Uh, anything good uh, it can bring. Um, I'm not aware of it being angry or like kind of a punishment in any way. Um, but I'm sure that there are instances. Um, now, it should also be noted that because Australia is so large, um, there's a lot of different environments. So certain environments emphasize different aspects of the serpent's kind of blessing. Um, there are, you know, people who live kind of in an area that gets a lot of monsoon, uh, kind of monsoon rains. Um, the serpent protects them from these rains, but also kind of gives them the benefits of it. It's kind of something where it is, uh, it is great and terrible, uh, but it is not vicious. Um, uh, so that is something to kind of keep in mind. Um, so I do, I do plan on diving more deeply in specific stories of the Rainbow Serpent. But again, I'd like to kind of wait until um, we, have, uh, we get to the part where the languages are more identifiable. Um, just so I can use the name or talk about the specific group. Because um, yeah, tribal identities typically tend to be fairly flexible at least among the people themselves. Obviously, sometimes when you get um, sedentary groups referring to them, they might tend to group those people together much closer than they actually are, or they might try to perpetuate an identity that no longer exists between groups. Um, but that being said, obviously, if you know tribes might form and break apart, but um, anyone that's living is carrying you know, all of their kind of... Um, you know, wherever their uh, background is, they're, they're carrying that forward, whether or not they call themselves by the same name as they did, you know, 200, 300 years ago. Um, 
Also, uh, you have a number of uh, kind of um, regional, not monster stories, but kind of fantastical um, creatures uh, that may occupy various parts of, um, you know, of the world or of Australia where these people are living. Uh, most famous, I think, would be the Bunyip. Uh, it's kind of said to belong to swamps and um, rivers and water holes. Uh, that's like a big um, Australian kind of cryptid that always pops up. Uh, but obviously, you know, people in the desert, they don't necessarily have the Bunyip. Um, but there are other regional kind of monsters that are, you know, uh, cryptids or um, kind of dangers. Uh, so there, there is kind of a regional variance for all that kind of thing. Um, and there is a theory that the Bunyip and other kind of creatures like that actually may be based on like, uh, I believe it's the marsupial tiger, um, which is obviously not a tiger. It's a large um, marsupial. And it's kind of really the only... Um, Uh, it's kind of the only large predator um, that um, that the Australians had to deal with. Uh, they obviously um, didn't have anything um, you know terrible that they had to deal with in terms of like they didn't have lions or tigers the way you do in Africa or India or China. Um, they don't even have dogs yet. The, the dingo shows up later, and it is maybe related to that mystery when talking about linguistics that I mentioned. Uh, it's very possible. Um, I think uh, the marsupial tiger was a little bit larger than um, than I think the I think it's the thalassin or thalassine, uh, which is like the Tasmanian tiger, um, which is now extinct, of course. Um, I think it lasted longer on Tasmania than anywhere else, but there was probably a mainland variation as well. Um, but yeah, so it's thought that you know the bunyip might have been an exaggeration memory of um, having to fight off these vicious giant rodents <laughs> that are trying to steal your kills or like yeah, attacking your children while you're not looking. Um, you know that kind of thing. You know that kind of um, that kind of deep fear that just kind of just worms its way in and never leaves, uh, something like that. Now, the other kind of overall tradition that permeates a lot of Australian religion and uh, uh, belief is that of um, the term in English is the dreaming, uh, though it is also sometimes called uh, the dream time, um, which is kind of related to the young quote I used at the start of this um, episode. Um, and this has been debated. There are some people who say that, you know, dreaming is a terrible uh, translation of this. It's something much, much different. But it's kind of... Um, uh, some people use the term every win, um, or it's like um, a collective unconsciousness, or just like a... Just kind of like saying, you know, a, a long time ago in a kingdom far, far away um, in terms of like a fairy tale telling. But it's also, it's not a long time ago uh, 
in a kingdom far, far away. It is, it is the here and the now, but it was it's the now, but in the past. But it could also be somewhere far away, but it's the same people. So it's a very complicated concept to try to um, translate to English. And uh, this is something that's probably evolved a lot. Um, and this is probably one thing that has kind of um, changed a little bit more than maybe stories of the, the you know the rainbow snake um, just because of how esoteric it is you know um, but that's again that's just me maybe projecting uh, it, it's obviously a very old uh, concept um, but it might be something um, trying to think of the best way to explain it um but it's kind of um i guess it's everything everything that a human can think about but not control as is a way that i kind of try to like uh imagine it um but it's something that humans can be more active in participating in uh there are religious um you know, things you can do to kind of enter the dream time or to, I guess, um, get lost in it or try to commune with the dream time. Um, so it's kind of a mix of a number of things. It's a mix of uh, animal worship, ancestor worship, uh, worship of uh, land or um, that it's kind of tied into a lot of different things. It's a very large concept, and and I can definitely understand the criticism of the word the dreaming or the translation of the dreaming because that is not at all a good way to describe it. But honestly, to come up with a better term is very um, is very hard to do. It's something that I because I thought about it for like two hours and I'm like yeah I, I, I cannot make a dent in this I, I can see why people would debate it and I can see why it's such a interesting concept um, but uh, this is something I look forward to returning to um, because the dreaming is a very interesting concept and it does kind of relate to a number of different uh philosophies that are not aboriginal but are maybe related um to some of the chinese philosophies um and that might be one of those comparative things to think about um when we get to um you know more i guess modern uh, or not modern but more um i guess uh concrete sources when we talk about Chinese religion and things like that. But, um, let's see, how long have we been going here? Um, well, over an hour. Okay, yeah, so this is this has been a very long episode. Um, I would like to dive more into the concept of the dreaming and the kind of the rainbow serpent. Um, because I do think they exist, at least in kind of proto-forms, if nothing else. Um, there are cave drawings depicting snakes, uh, and that they are kind of considered, 
you know, representations and the motifs are reused in more recent rock art uh, that everyone agrees is indeed the Rainbow Serpent. Now, whether it's kind of this omnipotent, omnipresent, beneficent being at this early stage is something of a debate. Um, Australia is going through a very uh, tough time at this point in our story. Uh, They are just now getting their modern uh, borders in terms of sea, um, you know, uh, or coastline. Uh, 6,000 BC is probably the latest that they're having to deal with a lot of the um, the flooding uh, or the, you know, the I guess the rising tides. Um, and they've always had to deal with dry spells in the center of the country. Um, and with the rains adjusting because of the end of the Younger Dryest period, uh, the continent is probably getting drier. Uh, you're, they're getting less um, less rain, less regular monsoons. And there are probably lakes and rivers that have been drying up for you know a while now. And this is something that's affecting them. So they might be doing... <clears throat> They might be trying to to call forth this rainbow serpent or you know summon it in the way that we think earlier hunter gatherers and Neolithic you know in um, in Europe or people making cave paintings they're making these sympathetic carvings of something they want to come uh, snakes you know being out in the rain being in water holes you know this is something that they're probably very much you know, trying to um, attract. They want snakes maybe because they think the snakes bring water or, you know, something along those lines. Uh, it's it's hard to say, but I do think the concept, if it's not fully formed, is very close to fully forming or it is something that is beginning to evolve into a much more active kind of uh, maybe worship or prayer for. Uh, that they're maybe trying to get this extra rain or this protection from this uh, this rainbow serpent. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I think that's something that's going on, and of course, uh, the dreaming. Um, you know, that's something that's uh, very kind of nebulous. It's hard to dive into for sure, but there are paintings that have like a kind of a jumble of different symbols and peoples and and just figures that we aren't even sure what they are um and even over uluru uh you can see you know great swaths of the stars the milky way will sometimes be visible over that um at certain times of the year uh they made a lot of petroglyphs kind of uh not far um in the i think the southeast of australia near Aora, uh, and um, I forget the other people, but there, there are very large petroglyphs that they've made, that these people, you know, these, these large um, kind of drawings of human figures, that these are, um, I think they're made prior to this period. Some I know were made after, but I, I didn't double-check that. But um, there's a lot of spiritual activity that these people are clearly involved in that is kind of outside um that's very different from what we're seeing in other places 
They definitely have their own traditions, or at least they've evolved radically from what you know the people they broke off from are doing. Um, yeah, I think that's um, I think that's kind of a good place to stop right now. Um, it feels like there was something else I wanted to talk about very briefly. Uh, we've got the Rainbow Serpent. We've got the Dreaming. Yeah, I think um, I think that's it for now. Uh, this was a very long episode. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, I'm looking forward to feedback here. Uh, I, I did want, again, I did try to come up with some more to talk about firmly, but this is all so far... You know, in the past, it's hard to kind of talk about without bringing in the best known sources for things talking about this are from more recent times. And it's definitely after some period uh, in the future. So I don't want to jump too far ahead more than I have to. I think etymology is fine to do that because obviously we have these terms and I like to talk about how, how we have them. Uh, but yeah, so... Um, Next week, um, I, unless I think of something that I missed uh, pretty heavily, um, we'll be moving on to Europe. Um, I'll probably do like a general overview episode, and then I'll dive into um, kind of various groups from there. Um, Europe shouldn't, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't jinx myself. I shouldn't write myself into a corner here. But Europe probably should only be uh, a few episodes, so... Uh, it won't probably be as long as Asia. Of course, it's not nearly as big as Asia, but uh, obviously there's more information in English I can talk about. There's more groups, um, but I'm going to try and kind of keep it succinct. Uh, don't want to don't overstay our welcome there when we still have the Americas to get to, but we're kind of in our last stretch here for Season 3. Uh, we should be done with that. Um, let's see. It's the third week of August uh, we should be into season four um, I would assume sometime in October though I need to determine if season three will end with kind of those episodes I've been talking about the part two of the domestication um, of crops and animals or if we'll be talking about urbanization as part of this or if that might all be part of season uh four but um of course we do have our uh, october kind of break so that's kind of a good time for me to work on all that stuff and and plan it out uh where we have our um kind of our less serious episodes for october if those of you that don't know uh last october i kind of did some some kind of uh, pseudo-historical slash uh, sci-fi slash fantasy stuff to talk about. It gave me a little bit more time to kind of do research and scripting for uh, the actual history stuff um, because I do occasionally get kind of fan on material. So, um, yeah, but uh, we're, we're moving along pretty well. Um, but thank you all for joining me this week. Uh, if you have any questions or feedback, you can reach me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can contact me on Twitter uh, via direct message, or you can just at me. I'll have the link to my Twitter bio in the account. You can reach me through commenting on any of my YouTube videos. Uh, you, um, you know, you're welcome to do whatever you like. Um, 
But I do hope to hear from you. I enjoy hearing fan feedback. I've gotten someone who I've been speaking with the last couple of uh, months here. He's given me some good feedback on some audio stuff um, and some things I had already been kind of thinking about. But um, it's always nice to hear from people about that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, uh, please let me know uh, if you have any, again, any questions or feedback. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, I hope you like, listen, subscribe, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, wherever you're able. And I will see you all next week. Thank you all so much. Have a good rest of your day. Goodbye.